0: We exist, as a local church, to tell one another what to do. By God's grace, we form a community in which we tell one another what to think, what to say, and how to live. Yes, of course, we are called to counsel one another wisely, with love and with gracious compassion, and no... We're not called by God to become a church of self-congratulating know-it-alls who enjoy ordering people around. But in the noblest sense, we form a body in which mutual counsel is to be appreciated, encouraged, and developed among us. Well, I don't have to tell you that such a church culture certainly reveals people who are serious about their walk with Christ and those who are not so serious about that walk. Marinated as we are in Western individualism, we naturally recoil at the mere suggestion of anyone telling us what to do. Don't tell me what to do is a motto of our times. But such autonomous... Self-determination is blown away by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Right now, meditate on it. Conceive of it. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ reigns from heaven's throne. He watches over us as He gathers a people for His name. He is our ruling head as the body, the church. And as we learn to calibrate our lives together to that reign, to that lordship, His will and His agenda will exert strong influence upon the way that we relate to one another. It will indeed lead us to tell one another what to do. I'm being a bit provocative in that phrase. But in the best and noblest sense of the word, the reigning Christ will lead us to that type of relationship. To exhort one another, to encourage one another, to honor Christ's will as He reigns over us. On occasion, I've had the opportunity to travel to different parts of the world and different parts of this country as your representative. And I come into places with some regularity And I tell people what to do with authority. People I've never met before. It's a kind of strange thing when you think about it. Who do I think I am? Going into places like this and saying, this is how your church should be ordered. This is how your relationships should work. This is what you should believe and what you should teach and how you should live out your life. Who am I to think I have any right to go into such places and tell people these things? There's one answer, isn't there? There is a reigning Christ. He is Lord over all of His people. And so together as we announce His words and speak for Him, we do speak with some level of authority into one another's lives. We admonish each other. Now this brings us back to Romans, the book of Romans, our studies through Romans in chapter 15 in particular here today. But as we think of chapter 14, verse 1 through 15, verse 13, Paul has inserted himself in a number of relational conflicts that the Roman church is having with one another. It particularly surrounds that issue of Jewish Christians and their understanding of God's will under the Old Covenant, how it applies to their Christian life, and Gentile Christians who do not have that heritage and that background, and there's conflicts in the church. And the Apostle Paul, writing to this church, he's never met them, never been there, and he says, in fact, he calls some of them weak in the faith. And he speaks to others who are strong in the faith, who understand the relationship between these covenants and he exhorts them he admonishes them he says to the weak you must stop judging those who eat non-kosher meat even though it violates your conscience that gentile christian who is doing that with clear conscience christ is his or her master you can rest in that i've received them They will stand before my judgment someday. You can rest in that. It's okay. Don't judge them. And to the strong, he's saying, do not despise or dismiss the weak in the faith. Love them. Receive them. I want you to protect their conscience. To do nothing that causes them to stumble in the faith. This is an awful lot from somebody who's never met you. To get down into your relationships and tell you what to do about it. And that natural concern is on Paul's mind here as we come to chapter 15 and verse 14 and following. Who on earth does Paul think he is to tell the Roman believers what to do? sensitive to this potential objection, he now answers that question, starting first by, I think, really, in a sense, disarming his hearers. Paul commends three qualities in his readers, but since he's moving toward a defense of his right to admonish them, which will take up the rest of this section, I believe the emphasis in verse 14 falls on the Romans' ability to counsel one another. And I'm going to turn the outline here this morning in that direction for that reason I think as we take 14 through 21 we think of the big picture of what Paul is trying to accomplish he's in a sense disarming them as he prepares to explain himself but first of all he commends the Roman church for its ability to counsel one another verse 14 I myself am satisfied about you my brothers That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. I'm satisfied about you. This is not flattery. Paul has ministered elsewhere with some of their members. He has heard reports about them. And he has genuinely become convinced about the goodness of this church. But more importantly, And I press this on you here as we think in this passage. More importantly, he considers the risen Christ. And that's why he talks to them this way. Not merely because of their reputation that he has heard. I've become convinced. But he speaks to them this way because he's convinced that Christ reigns as Lord over his church. And so where Christ saves and redeems, he sanctifies He moves in the lives of his people to change them and develop them. Paul knows that God is actively nurturing Christian character in this assembly. And so he rightly and sincerely commends them here in verse 14 for what? First of all, for their goodness. God's grace, His goodness, flows through them in their relationships to one another. Remember the context here. We have strong and weak Struggling to relate with one another, judgment going one way, ridicule going the other, and Paul says, I am convinced about your goodness. Secondly, he commends them for their knowledge. Now, as he lays this out here, filled with all knowledge, he's not saying that they know everything there is to know, of course but they possess the knowledge necessary to live the Christian life. They know right from wrong because they have a solid knowledge of God's revealed truth in Scripture. And you notice that last phrase there again in verse 14, and you are able to instruct one another. I commend you for this. You're able to instruct each other. The word instruct one another can be variously translated. Depending on the context, it speaks of warning of reminding, of teaching, of encouraging, and often even of correcting one another's behavior. I look at you as a church. I'm looking for maturity here. I see your goodness. I see your knowledge. And I praise God for this skill that you can correct and warn and teach and encourage each other. You're talking together and you're relating together in such a way that is helpful to one another's sanctification. It's an amazing statement. As they served Christ to his head over their church, they demonstrate this by minding one another's business on some level. They're minding, that is, one another's sanctification. Paul commends them for being mature to render mutual counsel. Their maturity as church members was witnessed in their capacity and their willingness to help each other conform their lives to the will of the risen Christ. So as Christ reigns over them as a church and is their head, they are speaking His truths to one another such that they grow up in the faith reminds us of that classic statement in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love. That we as the members of the body are to speak truth in love to one another. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. You see the connection there. The risen Christ who is the head and we are talking to one another in such a way that sanctifies from our heads... The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amazing connection there. The head, Christ, is the source of our growth in our life. But he uses the members to speak to one another encouraging one another thus working properly so that we build one another up in the faith. And it certainly leads to the question of how does Eden Baptist Church do this? Do we just observe from a distance and say, well, that's nice thoughts for them. But no, of course, for us. How do we do this? I think we probably do it in ways we don't even recognize. But let's start with the prerequisite. It is to see the triangular relationship. One and one, we relate to each other down here, but we relate to Christ above. It's only as we are relating to Him who reigns above that we will have any chance of seeing this take place in our lives down here on the carpet, as we relate to one another here. Only as we see that. But having said that, I think this takes place. We build one another up. We admonish and counsel and encourage and warn and counsel one another forward in times when we talk. And that has happened before this service. And that will happen by God's grace following this service. At times such as that, when we interact and I encourage us again, if we're going to be a church mature enough to counsel one another, then we have to talk about more than the melting snow, although it's pretty exciting. But we, and feel free to talk about it. But as we talk with one another, we want to talk about what we've learned in God's Word. We want to talk about our, our walk with Christ as we break. We want to pray here with one another as we follow the service. It takes place certainly as we gather in home groups and in Bible studies throughout the week. There where we have more opportunity to speak to each other, to know what is your life like? Where are you living? How are you growing? Where are you progressing? There are opportunities for this in discipleship relationships that pop up and bud here and there as people take one another along. We have opportunity here as we address sin and confess sin to one another as we relate as brothers and sisters in Christ. Certainly there is an opportunity here at times of grief and trial as we encourage one another through notes of comfort, through words of encouragement, through just being there with each other through times of grief and difficulty and heartache. As we pray for one another here in the assembly and privately in our homes, we are bearing up. Now they're not specifically speaking to one another, but speaking about one another to God. We edify and encourage. And again, how we do this as a church together certainly should be taking place here in the assembly as the word is taught, but also in the area of church discipline. This is one way that we warn and we correct as a church. And I think, honestly, on the basis of this verse, on the basis of this passage, that the Spirit of God would look down upon a church and would say that a church is maturing and growing and a cause of rejoicing to the Lord if it is capable of addressing sin. It's not an easy thing for us to do as a church, and we have to continue to talk about it and encourage ourselves to do what is right in this area. But indeed, that is what we are doing when we admonish this Greek word to warn, to encourage, to call to right action. If we're going to honor the Lord, then we need to have the capacity to do this. On all of these levels, to be speaking to one another, as we see here in Ephesians 4, to be speaking the truth in love to one another, such that we, in a sense, mediate the will and the purpose of Christ in our relationships with each other so that we grow. And that'll happen in very casual conversation, in formal conversation, one on one, smaller groups in the assembly on every level, seeking to say that our relationships with each other grow us and encourage us in the faith. Paul looks at them and he commends this church for being able to do this. But by encouraging them in their instruction of one another, he seems to be setting them up to consider his counsel toward them. And we find that now in verses 15 through 21. Paul asserts now, secondly then, his authority as an apostle to the Gentiles to counsel the church, even though he doesn't know them and has never been there. He doesn't know them personally. Some of them he does, but uh, doesn't know them as a church as a whole personally. But verse 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace that's given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So he's saying what? Praise God, you have the ability to admonish each other. But I also have the authority to admonish you. I've waxed bold here in this letter, as I've instructed you, even though I've not met you in person. What authority does Paul have to tell the Roman church what to do? The answer is the grace given me by the risen Christ The Christ given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So it's again this triangular relationship. It is the risen Christ, His agenda, that impacts Paul's relationship to these believers. If there is no Christ, if there is no reigning head of the church, then I live my life, you live your life, and we leave each other alone. But because Christ lives... I have an interest in you that you will align your life with his purposes and will. We notice then again that the agenda of the risen Christ impacts these relationships. So Paul doesn't say, listen, it's my self-earned credentials. That's why I'm telling you what to do. It's not Paul's intellectual superiority or his status as a rabbi. If you would only know what I've studied in Jerusalem, then you'd listen to me because I come with with that kind of background and influence. None, None of that. His authority comes from Christ who has called Paul to be his minister, his servant of the good news. So I've written to you boldly, because of the grace given me by God, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles... Now, specifically, in the priestly service of the Gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the priestly service of the Gospel of God, Paul speaks here, obviously, figuratively. He's not a Levitical priest any more than the Gentiles are sacrificial animals. But what the picture is here is Paul is saying, I, like a priest, am offering up to God The Gentiles, that's us today, in a sense. Those who have come to Christ outside of the call of God upon Abraham and Israel. I am offering those who have responded up to you like a a living sacrifice that brings pleasure to the Lord. So we think of verses 9 through 12 again. And the praises of the Gentiles that are lifted to Christ as they come to salvation. As we have lifted our praises to Him this morning. Because of the salvation that's come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, that's what I'm into here. These Gentile believers in Christ are, you notice they're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. At the end of verse 16 using that same sacrificial imagery of the perfect lamb, the flawless animal. They are being sanctified by God and purified. The Jewish Christians should certainly take note here. God has an agenda to save a people for His name. He's included the Gentiles. They are praising Him. And Paul is moving around the known world, winning people to Christ, and lifting them up, as it were, to the Lord, and saying, here, here they are, those for whom you've died. Now speaking of his work to win Gentiles to Christ, Paul continues verse 17 by adding this, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. He boasts in his work for God. He does not boast in himself. He boasts in the work God is doing to convert Gentiles to Christ, to embrace the good news of salvation in His name. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. Notice again that it's what Christ has accomplished. The emphasis falling on what the risen Christ is doing in this church at Rome and in the churches that Paul has established and those that he hasn't throughout the world. And we notice in verse 18 that Paul has accomplished what he's accomplished. He's carried forward by word and deed. By word, what's that? That's his preaching of the word, his taking of the message of the gospel to them. And by deed, what is that? Certainly by his travels by His suffering of persecution, and by miraculous deeds, verse 19, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. The power of signs and wonders, signs, speaks of the purpose of miracles that, Christ, that uh, Paul worked through Christ. The miracles that the apostles performed bore witness to the authority of their message. They announced the dawning of the new age of salvation in Christ. Miracles were not designed by God to lure crowds. It wasn't their intention, although they had that effect, certainly. The Miracles were not given to the apostles in order to raise money for their ongoing mission. Why did God give the apostles the capacity to perform these signs? They were signs. They were sign miracles authenticating the message about Christ's death and resurrection. Might be a good place to insert once again, no one was ever saved by a miracle. You can say, what about the Apostle Paul? No one's ever saved by a miracle. We're saved as we respond to the message that the miracle attests There are those who witnessed the miracle of all miracles. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what did they do? Let's kill everybody who knows what went on. Let's pay off the soldiers who saw what happened. They didn't save them. No one's been saved by a miracle alone. We trust in the miracle of the resurrection. We believe in the miracles that the apostles performed, the early church performed, but it's because it authenticates a message. Faith comes by hearing the message so back to the point signs are also he calls them also wonders emphasizing the unique nature of these miracles miracles were literally miracles supernatural occurrences they were not tricks they were not sleight of hand they were not illusions they were the breaking into this world of God's saving purpose and of His power, and showing that those who spoke these messages spoke for God. So rejoicing then in God's powerful work to save lost souls, Paul reports the geographical conquest of his mission, as verse 19 continues. So there is the power of the signs and wonders, there is the power of the Spirit of God transforming and baptizing those who respond in faith so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ, the gospel about Jesus that He's been announcing. From the borders of Jerusalem on the east to the borders of Illyricum on the west, perhaps even possibly stepping into that region, we just don't know about that, But at any rate, he's fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What on earth does that mean? How do you do that? I think all it's saying, I think all Paul is saying here is that he has completed his unique mission to establish beachheads of the gospel in strategic urban centers so that the gospel could continue to spread in those places. This is Paul's unique mission. Paul obviously does not mean that he preached the gospel to every inhabitant in this large swath of land across the Roman Empire. He does not mean even that he planted a church in each town or city. He means simply that God had used him to establish a network of churches from Jerusalem on westward into Greece, perhaps a bit beyond and that he had fulfilled the work the Lord had given him to do. That's the point. So we could illustrate it. There's some landscapers. This actually happens in Minnesota. Hang in there. There's landscaping that happens. It's coming. But there's landscapers, and they are given this big hill, long, wide hill. It's all dirt, and it's all eroding, and they're hired to plant ground cover. There would be plants that are going to grow and take care of the erosion on this hill and so they take the job they do their work one day and they say the job is finished and the owners look out and go what on earth are you talking about i see more dirt than i see plants and what do the landscapers say just wait this ground cover will grow and it it will begin to connect and cover the whole hill It's in a sense where Paul is at here. I put the plants in. They're not all connecting yet. It might take days to travel between the churches that that I've established, but they're going to begin to spread the truth from those beachheads out to others. And I've fulfilled this work by the grace of God. Verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. That's a figure of speech, meaning to evangelize in a region where someone else has already proclaimed the gospel. There's already beachheads there that are disseminating the gospel. Paul's mission was not then to go into those areas. And we could ask then, is that wrong? Is it wrong to teach or establish churches in places where the name of Christ is already known? I think we all know intuitively, of course not. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul expects this to happen, in fact. He sends Timothy and Titus and others of his missionary team into such places. So it's clearly not wrong for others, but Paul's not going to do that because of his unique calling and mission. It's his unique calling, as is the calling of pioneer missionaries, such as, let's say, the farmers that we support, to take the gospel into places to seek to plant churches at places where people have never heard the gospel. And you can't point in this region to a church that is serving as a lighthouse of saving faith in this region. I I, I, that was my agenda. That's where I was going. That's my calling. Says Paul. So he, to say it a different way, was called to plant or to sow the seed. Others were called to water it after him. God has called me to aggressively traverse the Western world to establish these beachheads for the gospel in major Gentile cities where no one else has done so. That's my work for the risen Christ. And he's saying what subtly? Roman church, that's why I'm talking to you. You are among the fruit of the Gentiles that God is giving, that God is winning for His name. That's you, and I'm an apostle to Gentiles, and that's why I'm talking to you. And why indeed any Christian can talk to any Christian? Because we serve the agenda of Christ. Indeed, this fulfills Scripture, but as he says in verse 21, as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Quoting Isaiah 52, the picture here is of Paul presenting Gentile converts to the Lord as a sacrifice. This is why I'm telling you what I'm telling you to do. You too are a Gentile church and part of my mission. So rejoice with me. Those who have never been told of Christ, I've had the privilege to open their blind eyes through the gospel. Those who have never heard have understood the gospel through my witness, and some now understand. It's a glorious truth. And so, our mission in this world is in that triangular relationship with Christ as head, and therefore, I speak to you boldly. As you commend, as you counsel one another, so I've counseled you. We see then, again, this I think is really the significance of this text for us in many ways. We consider again how Paul roots everything in the Gospel. Everything is rooted in what the risen Christ is doing. The Romans are to respond to Paul in a certain manner. And they will do that if they grasp the mission of Christ. If they don't grasp the mission of Christ, then his counsel will be seen as some obnoxious individual telling us what to do, getting into our business. If they look at it that way, that's how they'll see it. They'll see it just as a horizontal relationship with no reigning, administering, overseeing Christ. And they'll tell Him to butt out and mind His own business. They may even respond by saying, who does Paul think He is telling us what to do with this vexing problem between the Jewish and Christian believers here. They become angry at him. It's only by seeing this triangular perspective that they will see that Paul speaks to them as a man under orders from Christ. And that really changes how we relate to one another. We don't welcome rebuke, correction, warning, redirection, admonition, we don't, re- we don't respond to that too well naturally. But when we know that there is a risen Christ, when we see this triangular perspective, it will fuel our responsiveness to those who may indeed speak for Christ. They may actually be saying what Jesus would say if He were here. They may not get it all right, He might disagree with a few pieces. He might have said it a different way. But if my brother or sister is speaking for Christ, in a sense, I'm listening to Jesus. That changes how we relate to each other radically. This will also fuel and encourage our counsel of one another. I don't think we should put this into practice by running around looking for somebody to tell what to do. It isn't that at all. But it does say, I do need to have courage to do what doesn't fit this culture. And that's to say that there is an authority, and I speak for that authority into your life, graciously, lovingly, faithfully. But I have the courage to say, brother, sister, you need to change course. We need to go a different direction. This is an area that needs to grow, and indeed to share such of our own lives with one another. We don't speak to one another merely as friends, we speak as brothers and sisters serving one another's sanctification under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that thought properly fuels church discipline we recognize under the Lordship of Christ that we must step forward and address unrepentant, entrenched sin. We can't just look the other way or we're not serving Christ. Should I leave this church? Should you leave this church ever and anywhere go to a church that understands that? just talked to a pastor yesterday from a church that doesn't. You have people living like the devil that aren't addressed because the church has no concept that they should or how, or that they must. It properly fuels addressing one another's sin. It properly fuels confessing our sins to one another. We have that type of relationship. Yes, it's unusual in this world. But when I confess my sin to another brother sister in Christ I'm acknowledging subtly but that there is a risen Christ there is a reigning Savior over us who knows all about me anyway we have to be careful what we confess to whom and how we need to be encouraging but when I confess my sin to others I'm recognizing there's a reigning Christ it properly fuels indeed how we would respond to visiting speakers. I don't know how we think of this that often, but to me I, I I do now and then. I think we have people come in here that know hardly anyone and they tell us what to do for an hour. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Because the relationship is reflecting that we all know the Savior. And so someone can come with open Bible and say this is what God says and though I may not know this individual hardly at all, we seek to vet them of course, but I don't know this person at all and yet this is my brother and my sister. I can speak to them the truth of Christ, they can speak to me the truth of Christ. I don't have to know them other than to know that he is their Lord. It also fuels our capacity of response. Verse 21. Our eyes have been opened by the Gospel. We who had not seen, now see. We who had not understood or even heard, now understand that Christ's death and resurrection is our saving grace. And I think... For those who are separated from Christ today, you've not come to personal relationship with Him. What a beautiful verse for you to grab onto, to pray, to seek, to respond to this. To recognize that in your sin there's a blindness. That the God of this world has blinded your eyes to understand what Christ has done to reconcile you to God. How His death works to pay the penalty of your sin. How His resurrection becomes our conquest of death and our victory forever. These things, if you're blind to them, you don't see them as beautiful. You don't see them as essential. That blindness is real. And it's not a blindness that you can overcome any more than some blind person can overcome their blindness. It's not going to be through your works and through your effort and your understanding that somehow you solve your problem. But I think take this verse and say, God, I want to be one who sees. Allow me to be one who understands. And I come in faith to trust in the death and resurrection of Christ for me. May God bring that dawning today pray to that end, seek Him, ask Him to save you. And for those of us who embrace that message, we really can't think any differently than the Apostle Paul. We're not the Apostle Paul. We don't have the precise mission that he had, but we should have and must have as a church and as individual Christians the interest that he had to take the message of Christ crucified and risen to the nations, and particularly to those who have never heard this message. This must mark our interest as individuals. That it's not just something the church does or other people do, but that we in our homes seek to support those who carry that message through our prayers. That we as a church give and support others who take that message. We thank the Lord that He launches out from us from time to time our representatives who take that message to various places and then those who go to live there that we help to support in cooperation with others to see them carrying out this message. This is what life is about. It's about this great work of Christ, the risen Christ, saving a people for His name and calling us as a church into that world that we might build one another up in the faith and see this message go forth from this beachhead to form others throughout the world. This is our high and noble calling, and it changes every relationship that we have. With the lost, I see them all as somebody I want to point to Christ. With the world at large, to see beachheads established where Christ's name has not been Announced and where it's not worshipped. And among one another, to say we are the body of Christ. To speak the truth of God lovingly, graciously, but insightfully and wisely to one another as we encourage our growth in Jesus by His grace. Let's pray. Father, allow me before this congregation and representing them in voice to say to You, to express to You our thanksgiving, to express our joy, that You have saved us by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that our wonder in that salvation, our thanksgiving for it, would evidence itself by our willingness to calibrate our lives to Your will. That what the risen Christ says and believes and purposes and desires and this mission to take His name to all the nations will be what fuels our every day. I pray that You'd recalibrate us from the selfishness, the pettiness, the horizontal frustrations. And I pray that You'd allow us to calibrate In a triangular perspective to the work of the risen Christ. Lord, we need to be constantly corrected. We're way too concerned about the things we own, about the places we're going, about our goals and our agendas, about getting our way, making the team, being in the play, getting on that musical group, being seen by our classmates, our neighbors, our workmates, our families, in the way we want to be seen. Fighting and squabbling like little gods trying to stake out our territory for our name. Lord, help us to look up. Help us to see the greater work of Christ carving out His kingdom among those who have never heard and sanctifying we who are sinful beings. But now, sanctified and growing and maturing, help us to help one another. Help us to tell each other what to do in the best, noblest sense of mutual counsel. Bring about such a spirit and such a culture in our church. Do this, we pray, as we obey you and strive to be the people that You've called us to be. So we pray that You'd send the fame of Your name into all the world, and that You'd use us to see ourselves as part of that larger work, and thus to respond to each other as Your people. For those blinded by sin, for those who are still separated from Christ, who are not born again by Your Spirit, may You bring conviction And may you open their blind eyes to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.